You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Tea, as it turns out, is a bottomless commodity history. As historian Erica Rappaport notes, at various times over the last 2,000 years, in quote, in Asia, the Near East, Europe, and North America, tea was a powerful medicine, a dangerous drug, a religious and artistic practice, a status symbol, an aspect of urban leisure, and a sign of respectability and virtue, end quote. As a product of empire, cultural exchange, medicinal application, immense profitability, social imagination, and agricultural innovation, the history of tea is also the history of millions of intersecting individual lives. Some, like Catherine of Braganza, were elite women who made tea drinking fashionable in the 17th century Britain. Some, like Mary Tuke of England, were entrepreneurs who built a business and reputation on the products of the 18th century imperial markets. And yet others, like Andaram Dikiol Fukan of Assam, were hopeful subjects of British imperialism who believed the 19th century empire could improve the lives of their people. The British thirst for tea altered economies and ecologies, started wars, and underwrote individual fortunes and spectacular falls from grace. The simplicity and ubiquitousness of tea in British culture today belies its deep history. Today, we're going to spill a little tea and see what we find out. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons, Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Irish, wait, Irish? <laughs> Iris, <laughs> Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We cannot thank you enough. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of this show, it is easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. 
It's nighttime in a city at war, and a serial killer is stalking London's dive bars, jazz joints, and pitch black streets, hunting for women and committing murder so cruel that he's dubbed the Blackout Ripper. I'm historian Hallie Rubenhold, and in the new season of Bad Women, I'll take you back to World War II to explore the most shocking killings you've probably never heard of. Step into the dark with me for Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper. Listen to Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Tea is a terrible topic for a single podcast episode. Mm-hmm. We could give up our jobs, start a new podcast that is just about tea, and we'd have work for the four of us for a lifetime. Yeah. I'm possibly teaching a British Empire class in the spring, and I, of course, want to think about commodities of the empire, so I knew I needed to familiarize myself with, at the very least, the recent historiography of tea in the British Empire. Even with that kind of narrow focus, you know, British tea, the scholarship is... It's immense. It's overwhelming. We're not going to try to dig into the many rabbit holes that this topic could send us down. Instead, we'll look at the impact of tea in the lives of three specific people whose collective lifetimes span the first 300 years of tea consumption in Britain. And we'll get a sense of how those individuals shaped the history of tea in the empire. As always, we want to acknowledge the work that the work that we do on this podcast is reliant on the excellent work of other historians. Mm-hmm. Today's episode draws primarily on the works of Jayita Sharma, Erica Rappaport, Mark Ellis, Richard Coulton, and Matthew Mauger. But there is a lot out there that deserves attention. Visit digpodcast.org to take a look at the full bibliography. Tea is indigenous to the monsoonal regions of southeastern Asia. It comes from the plant species that scientists now call Camellia sinensis. Carl Linnaeus named the plant genus Camellia after a 17th century Moravian-born Jesuit brother and missionary, even though the Jesuit, George Camel, had no direct connections to tea at all. Sinensis means from China. Camellia sinensis is an evergreen plant, and it prefers tropical and subtropical climates. The best tasting tea plants grow at higher elevations, over 4,900 feet above sea level. The plant itself can grow into a tree of up to 52 feet in height if left undisturbed, but those who cultivate tea keep the plants pruned to waist height for ease of cultivation. As we'll discuss later, Assam had a number of uncultivated wild tea forests full of these trees in the 19th century. When the British annexed the land after a war with Burma, their entrepreneurial company men discovered the forests and the potential for a product they hoped would rival China's. There are two main varieties of tea today. 
Camellia sinensis variation sinensis and Camellia sinensis variation asamica. The former is the small leaf variety found in China, and the latter is the large leaf variety that the British uh, found in the 19th century in Assam. Most Indian teas and fermented teas are from the Asamica variety, whereas most Chinese, Formosan, and Japanese teas are sinensis. Different growing conditions, harvesting moments, blending, and modes of preservation change the flavor and value of different teas, even though they're all made from the same plant. The preservation and processing of tea leaves further delineates what type it is. White tea will be wilted and unoxidized. Yellow tea will be unwilted and unoxidized, but allowed to yellow. Green tea will be unwilted and unoxidized. Oolong will be wilted, bruised, and partially oxidized. Black tea will be wilted, possibly crushed, and fully oxidized. And Purere is green tea that has been allowed to ferment. For the tea drinkers out there, and I am admittedly not one of them, <laughs> they will know that each of these teas has a distinct flavor. Yeah, I'm also not really a tea drinker. I mean, I I actually do drink a lot of tea, but I don't drink tea tea. You drink herbal. I drink herbal tea because thing. I don't really like the taste of actual tea. Sometimes I will drink like I, I have enjoyed a white tea. And I like iced tea. I guess that counts, right? It's made out of tea. That's definitely, isn't iced tea made from black tea usually? Yeah, yeah but like yeah. hot black tea does not do it for me at all. Anyway, mm. you don't care about whether I like tea. You want to learn about the history of tea. So here we go. The 8th century teacher Lu Yu in his Cha Jing, classic of tea, suggested that the leaves of the tea plant were consumed in China as early as 2737 BCE. Before it was popularized as a beverage, people in East Asia ate tea leaves, adding them to soup or chewing them for the caffeinated kick. Its medicinal uses were recorded by Hua To, a physician who lived during the late Eastern Han Dynasty, and physical evidence of tea was found in the tomb of Emperor Jing of Han, suggesting that it was consumed as a beverage by the elite in China as early as the 2nd century before the Common Era. According to Erica Rappaport, the Chinese first used tea as a medicinal herb and drink during the Western Han period, circa 206 BC to AD 9, and it found a place in the broader culture during the Tang era, that's roughly 618 to 907 uh, CE. Many centuries before the British developed a taste for the stuff, tea was both a political and a religious staple in China, particularly among the elite. Significantly, the ways the Chinese and Japanese used tea in medical, ritual, social, and commercial contexts were, as Ellis et al. note, quote, integral to the ways in which its first European drinkers tasted and perceived the beverage. By the end of the Ming Dynasty, tea was consumed en masse in China. The cultivation and preparation of tea had connoisseurs, those whose discerning tastes invited the experimentation needed to develop oolong and other preparation varieties. The questions of when to pick the leaves, how to fire or ferment the leaves, whether to preserve in cakes or loose leaf, and myriad other considerations were asked and answered in those thousands of years of thinking about and consuming tea. Lu Yu, for example, preferred compressed teas and considered teas made from leaves coarse, loose, powdered, or cake to be vulgar, though he doesn't elaborate on why. 
But beyond the elites who engaged in tea culture as a marker of status, tea's mass marketability was largely helped along by Buddhist practitioners' adoption of the beverage. Buddhists found the physiological effects of tea helpful to the wakeful sobriety of their practices. Like many governments would discover in the following centuries, both Chinese and European, the popularity of the caffeinated beverage among the masses also made it the kind of commodity that the state wanted a piece of. Various Chinese governments, starting with the Tang Dynasty, taxed the bejesus out of tea in order to raise capital funds for the state. This was initially just a 10% tax levy, but later dynasties both taxed tea plantations and forced tea farmers to sell to the state at artificially low prices so that the state could sell to wholesalers at a markup of over 200%. Portuguese merchants were the first Europeans to establish trade relationships with China, though they were quickly followed by and ultimately displaced by Dutch merchants from the VOC or Dutch East India Company. In the 17th century, the Dutch were the only European nation trading with Japan. It was through these merchants that tea was first imported to Europe, where it gained a reputation as one of those covetous luxury goods that Europeans would develop a taste for. British scientists and merchants obtained their first tea samples from Dutch colleagues and contacts and quickly began publishing on the health benefits and superiority of the, quote, China drink in newspapers, pamphlets, and tracts. By the end of the 17th century, Europeans virtually controlled the production and export of the various New World commodities, such as sugar, tobacco, coffee, and cocoa. As we discussed ages ago in our bittersweet episode, for example, sugar had replaced other cash crops in Barbados by the 1670s, and the plantations, refineries, and export companies were all owned by Europeans, with most of the labor being done by enslaved West Africans. Similarly, by the mid-17th century, largely through deceptive trade agreements and military operations, the Dutch took control of the nutmeg industry in the Moluccas and established a monopoly on that highly desired spice. Conversely, as Erica Rappaport notes, before the 19th century, Europeans played a, re a relatively minor part in the tea trade compared to sugar, tobacco, coffee, and cocoa. But their failure to dominate the market did not diminish their developing taste for the stuff. There wouldn't be a mass tea drinking in the UK until the 19th century, but Rappaport writes that, quote, over time, a small but influential group of aristocratic and cosmopolitan Britons began to view and promote tea as a panacea capable of curing most mental, physical, and social disorders. The British East India Company entered the trade and its efforts, and those of smugglers, private merchants, shopkeepers, medical experts, and temperance enthusiasts enabled tea to become a regular feature of social life and diets of people in England, Scotland, and Wales, parts of Ireland, North America, and other areas of the British Empire and British world in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The European taste for tea was paired with a taste for Chinese culture. Unsurprisingly, Dutch, Portuguese, French, and then British nationals were fascinated with the products, people, and customs they encountered in East Asia. As they developed their taste for the China drink, they did so by emulating Chinese tea cultures. Erica Rappaport argues that in translating and reframing Chinese ideas about tea, Europeans made tea a core part of European culture. I'm going to say that again. Europeans made tea, quote, a core part of European culture. 
Asian ideas about the body, materiality, health, and spirituality traveled with the commodity throughout much of the Atlantic world, end quote. Like most of the luxury goods that Europeans sought in the 16th and 17th centuries, tea began its imperial history as a commodity consumed almost exclusively by Britain's elite. Despite later myths that royals introduced tea to English society, tea was actually introduced over the course of the 17th century through various scientific and merchant pamphlets and tracts extolling the health benefits and sophistication of the China drink, which British merchants were importing via the Dutch East India Company. The British East India Company had no trading relationships with China in the 17th century and reluctantly relied on the Dutch for access to those East Asian goods. As Rappaport argues, 17th century men like Samuel Hartlieb, John Alvington, John Chamberlain, and Thomas Povey wrote extensively on T's alleged ability to prevent dropsy, dry, moist humors, cleanse and purify a hot liver, help mm. the bladder and kidneys, ease pains of the colic, prevent consumption, sharpen memory, and strengthen the will. The men who backed T's many positive properties included members of the Royal Society, some who'd traveled to East Asia and back, and some who'd corresponded with doctors, merchants, and scientists in Holland. All those who tried and studied tea seemed to agree. It was a product that Britain needed. There are a number of stories about how the English nobility started drinking tea. During the interregnum from 1649 to 1660, that fleeting moment when England got rid of the monarchy and was a republic, English nobles and English nobles on the lamb in Europe developed a taste for tea when they encountered it in the Dutch, French, and Portuguese courts. Another story alleges that when the crown was restored in 1660 and Charles II took the throne, the East India Company gave him a gift of two pounds of high quality tea in an act of good faith and will. Yet another story grants the honor of England's introduction to tea to two Dutch ladies who married into the British nobility and used tea parties to ease their way into the court social circles. One of the most popular stories about how England first developed its tea habit is linked to King Charles II's Portuguese wife, Catherine of Braganza, Agnes Strickland, writing Lives of the Queens of England in 1850, recounted the tale of Catherine's role in introducing tea to British society. Though, as all current historians know, Strickland offered no actual evidence for the story she told about Catherine. Catherine of Braganza was born in Portugal in 1638 to Luisa de Guzman and John, 8th Duke of Braganza. She was raised in Lisbon and may have spent much of her youth at a convent close by the royal palace. Her father ascended to the Portuguese throne in 1640, which made Catherine a particularly powerful potential bride. When her father died in 1656, her mother, Queen Louisa, acting as regent, selected her eldest surviving daughter's husband, Charles II of England. Catherine was married to Charles in May 1662 and brought with her a considerable dowry, including Tangier in North Africa, Bombay in India, as well as trading privileges in Brazil and the Portuguese East Indies, and also like 500,000 pounds, which was much needed for the much impoverished Charles II. In exchange, Portugal got naval military support, which it needed for their ongoing war with Spain, and Catherine was permitted to remain a Catholic once she was in the Protestant English kingdom. 
According to Agnes Strickland, Catherine introduced tea to, quote, civilize the British ladies as well as gentlemen who at all times of the day heated or stupefied their brains with ale and wine. As historian Erica Rappaport notes, Strickland's portrait of the demure 17th century queen from Portugal resembled very closely the domesticated descriptions of the 19th century English queen Victoria. Though Strickland may have imposed Victorian sensibilities on the recounting of Queen Consort Catherine's life and temperament, it was also true that Catherine's contemporaries made the connection between Catherine and tea. Courtier Edmund Waller wrote a poem about Catherine in the 1680s that extolled both the Queen Consort and the tea that she preferred to drink. Quote, Venus, her myrtle, Phoebus has his bays. Tea both excels, which she vouchsafes to praise. The best of queens and the best of herbs we owe to that bold nation, which the way did show to the fair region where the sun does rise, whose rich productions we so justly prize. The muse's friend, Tea does our fancy aid repress those vapors which the head invade and keeps that palace of the soul serene fit on her birthday to salute the queen. Now, while yeah, I wrote wait, this- I'm interrupting you to yep. say uh, that goes out to that one reviewer who was like, I hate it when you do accents. Congratulations. That was just for you. And that wasn't even an accent. You could have definitely. I could have played more more. British airs. For example, Venus, her myrtle, Phoebus (laughs) has his base. There you go. (laughs) That's my British man voice. Waller wrote this poem for Catherine's birthday. So it's necessarily complimentary of the queen, lest she take offense. But as Markman Ellis and his co-authors note, quote, Waller celebrates the queen through her poetic association with tea and the trade in the East Indies. The poet links explorers from Portugal, that bold nation, with the new eastward trade routes opened to China, that fair region where the sun does rise, which have encouraged the trade and luxuries, those, quote, rich productions we so justly prize. Among these, Waller identifies tea as the preeminent prize of these voyages, as the muse's friend, both by association and physiological effect. Tea, Waller concludes, aids the poet's fancy or imagination and encourages tranquility and calm by keeping that palace of the soul serene. Though it was indeed the mostly male scholars, scientists, and merchants who collectively introduced tea to Britain in the 17th century, the mythology of tea's pathway through noble ladies and the queen casts tea in its early years as a particularly feminine ritual. Socializing with tea was popular among the elite, especially noble women, but those practices were less cause and more effect in Britain's slow popularization of tea consumption. What Markman Ellis, Erica Rappaport, and even Agnes Strickland do agree on, however, is that tea gained momentum as a drink popular among the elite by the 1680s. Ellis notes that, quote, Waller himself had been an enthusiast since the 1650s when he was noted by Hartlib as a great taker or user of tea, end quote. 
But still, in the 17th century, tea was too expensive for the majority of British citizens. In the 1660s, coffee houses were selling tea at 60 shillings per pound, whereas coffee beans were only, at most, 6 shillings per pound. While bricks of tea leaves were probably lighter than coffee beans, the price difference was still likely cost prohibitive for most. So it remained a beverage of the elite throughout the 17th century and most of the 18th. Certainly, Catherine and Charles's marriage, which established a stronger trade relationship with the Portuguese, would have gained English merchants better access to the Chinese herb. But the fact remained that Britain's merchants still had to buy tea through other middlemen, the Dutch, the Portuguese, or the French, as Britain didn't have legal access to Japanese or Chinese ports. Smuggling and subterfuge certainly abounded, but those illegally obtained goods were just as likely to sell for high prices that the average English citizen simply could not afford. But as the British East India Company and other joint stock trading ventures expanded British influence around the world, the market gap started to close, which would increase the supply, lower the prices, and force those same tea merchants to find ways to increase the demand for tea. In 1713, direct trade between China and Britain finally opened. According to Rappaport, the EIC got into tea because they needed a new way to increase demand for sugar. As we discussed in our episode on sugar and slavery in Barbados, Portuguese Portuguese Brazil dominated sugar production and trade in the 17th century. But by the 18th century, British Barbados had elbowed the Portuguese out as king of sugar. The production levels created a surplus that threatened the profitability of the sugar industry. And so introducing yet another popular drink to the British population and one that would taste better with sugar was obviously advantageous. And it really does taste better with sugar. The East India Company was also involved in an ongoing rivalry with the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, and other European companies in all things. And they were concerned with the Dutch control over the delivery of tea to British domestic markets. According to Rappaport, quote, this rivalry increased the scale of the trade, with tea eventually accounting for between 70 and 90 percent of all cargo outbound from Canton, something well recognized by a French merchant who commented that, It is tea which draws European vessels to China. The other articles that comprise their cargoes are only taken for the sake of variety. While the English came to dominate this business, French, Flemish, Swedish, and other companies also satisfied European markets. Russia imported via overland routes, and all the while the Chinese still made up the greatest single market for tea. During the 18th century, however, the EIC increasingly specialized in tea. From only a few hundred pounds in the 1690s, By 1757, the company imported 12 million pounds a year and stored another 17 million in its London warehouses, end quote. According to Rappaport, the EIC's investment in tea shifted considerably after 1757 when Robert Clive defeated the Nawab of Bengal. Quote, the company's new power over Bengal encouraged its development and control of opium, which it used to pay for Chinese tea thereby stemming the flow of the nation's silver reserves to China. Bengal's tax revenues also enabled the company to purchase more lower-priced black teas, end quote. Wow, that's a lot of, like, shifting, like, using the opium to get the tea and the silver reserves. Like, there's so much colonialist 
like financial economic history there that yeah. like is kind of wild it's super deep and we're not even going to get into we're like scratching the surface because this is like oh sure the opium wars right even the taiping right. rebellion the boxer rebellion this, uh-huh. this crazy shit. well and the Qing dynasty all that stuff um so tea consumption in britain and its colonies grew dramatically over the 18th century the popularity of tea did grow alongside the supply. According to Rappaport, in 1700, tea consumption was 10 times that of coffee. But by 1730, you know, 30 years later, that pattern was reversed with tea's popularity, um, and, and tea's popularity only grew over the remainder of the century. Rappaport notes that for a variety of reasons, the British tended to export coffee, particularly to German markets, and retain tea for domestic and colonial markets. The growing middle class of Britain adapted tea culture from the empire's elites over the course of the century, increasing sales, but it was the increased supply that shifted the politics of tea at the end of the century. The 1773 Tea Act effectively granted the East India Company a monopoly over the export of tea to the American colonies and British Isles. Tea was in part a luxury commodity because it was so expensive, a price range that was artificially created by taxes and tariffs on the stuff when it was imported by non-British companies, with middlemen, merchants, and smugglers assisting in the complicated tea economy. The Tea Act undercut the English and American smugglers and merchants who'd made their fortunes in trading in Dutch tea, and they encouraged colonists to reject EIC tea. Those same disgruntled middlemen later launched the Tea Parties of Boston, Greenwich, Charleston, and Philadelphia. Then the Commutation Act of 1784, in an effort to further undercut the Dutch role in the British Empire's tea market, drastically reduced the price of the East India Company's teas, reducing the price to just three pennies a pound. Though the American colonists made a nationalist point of rejecting tea consumption, their corner of the market did little to impact the broader trends of tea in the empire. As Rappaport notes, quote, the educated and wealthy regarded tea as an Asian medicine and status symbol. Scientific treatises, broadsides, and advertisements promoted this Chinese herb that could heal, energize, strengthen, and balance European bodies. Court cultures, pleasure gardens, and coffee houses reinforced tea's foreignness while making health and foreign cultures fashionable and pleasurable. Whether in England or Pennsylvania, British tea cultures were an amalgam of European, Asian, Near Eastern, and diverse local customs and ideologies. And along with coffee and chocolate, tea became an integral part of the public culture of the late 18th century as well. Tea and coffee houses were spaces where men and sometimes women uh, could debate current affairs, philosophy, politics, and nationalist ideologies. When historians talk about the Enlightenment, the centrality of these spaces, where people got hot, stimulating beverages and discussed important ideas, is consistent. Tea houses were not just fomenters of revolution and reform. They were also entrepreneurial opportunities and occasionally opportunities for women to stake a claim in public life, even as the first steps toward, quote, separate spheres were developing in British society. Thomas Twining of Painswick, Gloucestershire, England, opened a coffee house in 1706 and in 1717, claiming that women would not enter the raucous coffee den of 216 Strand, Twining bought the adjacent house and opened a tea room for ladies. 
Twining and other tea shop owners who marketed to women in particular replicated earlier assumptions about tea as a beverage taken by noble women. The association of tea and femininity was also certainly an extension of European perceptions of East Asian culture as feminine. I feel like Marissa has talked about this, about tea houses, Hmm. a lot in previous episodes, although I couldn't point you towards a particular individual one. I know that I know that it has happened. (laughs) Is it in the Sappho's episode, maybe? Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe I'll link that. Later in the century, Twining's tea shop was managed by Mary Twining, the widow of Thomas's grandson. According to Rappaport, quote, Mary carried the firm through an extremely competitive era when, according to Richard, there were about 30,000 tea dealers in the United Kingdom. Even when tea entrepreneurship built on and promoted the association of women, domesticity, and tea, there were also still opportunities for women to stake a claim in those commercial enterprises. Twinings is still a very successful tea company, and I must say that when I do drink a tea, I enjoy Twinings brand. Oh, how... Product placement. (laughs) How uh, pedestrian of you. Mm, sorry. Listen, I'm not a tea connoisseur. <laughs> Is that bad? I don't know. Is twining bad? I have bad? no idea. I don't know anything about tea. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, you I don't know, know what you're talking about. You. I don't even like iced tea. All tea is gross <laughs> to me. I'm sorry. Mary Took of York was another woman who made a name for herself in the tea room market, and in doing so, contributed to the popularization of tea in the United Kingdom. When faced with the, challenging, with the challenge of having to be head of household for her siblings in 1723, the unmarried 30-year-old spinster, Mary Took, which is spelled T-U-K-E, but sometimes also spelled T-E-W-K, opened a grocery store in Walmgate, York. Mary's shop carried all the popular imperial goods of the time, spices from the East Indies, tobacco from the Virginia colony, sugar from Barbados, and of course, coffee, chocolate, and tea. The city of York denied Mary a license to trade because she was not a member of the Society of Merchant Adventurers. Since (laughs) one had to be a man to join said society, she was ineligible. Nevertheless, she persisted. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you. After eight years in business, she paid a fine to the society. And after that, the society stopped harassing her and threatening imprisonment. Today, Mary Took is remembered for her role in establishing York as the chocolate city of Britain. Undoubtedly, though, in the 18th century, her sale of tea was more important to the success of her business than chocolate or coffee. For a Quaker woman who eschewed marriage and struck out on her own, tea and other various imperial commodities made Mary's independence and business success possible. By the start of the 19th century, tea proved to be the most profitable product of the East India Company's commerce with Asia. Still, though tea shops, elite culture, and the cost reduction of the Commutation Act, tea would not see its ubiquitous adoption into British daily culture until the mid-19th century. As Rappaport notes, quote, by the early 1800s, tax increases, growing impoverishment, mounting troubles with China, and perhaps even the cultural backlash against the brew meant that consumption in Britain stagnated. Between 1801 and 1810, British per capita consumption was at 1.41 pounds a year. It fell to 1.28 in the next decade and did not recover its earlier consumption rates until the 1840s, end quote. 
But after the 1840s, consumption patterns resumed their steady incline. For much of that earlier period, the East India Company was forced to continue trading with China. That specific relationship, including the EIC's opium production and import practices in China, China's emperor asking Queen Victoria to put a stop to the opium dealers of her queendom, the British continued illegal drug dealing, the subsequent opium wars, exploitative post-war terms, the Taiping and Boxer rebellions, and all kinds of other prompted by the EIC's goal of squeezing China for tea at the lowest or most in-kind prices possible, that relationship needs its own podcast episode, or perhaps several. So, suffice it to say that Britain's demand for tea and the EIC's intentions to supply that tea and maximize their profits, no matter what the cost, had major human costs. And those costs were not limited to China either. Which brings us to India and Anandaram Dekio Fukan of Assam. As we've discussed before on the show, the East India Company's major military economic holding in the British Empire was India. The East India Company established its first factory in 1613 at Surat, Gujarat, and its second at Malusapatnam in the Bay of Bengal in 1619. Later, though Bombay was not considered a strategic military or economic hub at the time, Queen Catherine's dowry would facilitate yet another point of British control on the subcontinent in the 1660s. For much of the period of 1613 to 1857, the EIC worked with the weakening Mughal emperors to establish economic centers, then to launch their own plantations and factories for the production of the goods and raw resources that the British demanded. We're going to skip ahead and past those two centuries of EIC expansion across India by hook and by crook. As we've already suggested, one of those initiatives included the cultivation of poppies for opium. But in their expansion projects across the subcontinent, the EIC came up against other enemies of the Mughals, such as the Burmese. In the 1820s, the EIC fought a war with Burma over the borderlands of India and Burma. The EIC won and annexed Assam in 1826. They were effectively trying to like stop the Burmese from threatening their holdings in Bengal which is the center of, of sort of EIC trade. Um, guided by locals seeking good relationships with their new overlords, Colonel Francis Jenkins, who was assigned to survey the new territory in Assam, found forests of tea growing wild in Assam. Within a decade, the British were establishing tea plantations in Assam, but it would take over 50 years before the British public would buy into the imperial tea that the Assam tea producers were peddling. In the 1830s, the East India Company funded scientific experimentation in the Assamese agriculture to maximize the profitability of British-controlled tea production. They hired botanist Charles Bruce, who collected seeds and samples from Chinese tea growers and some of the growers themselves to hybridize the EIC Chinese product and eventually replace it with the Assam variety. Their initial experiment was a success. The first batch sold in 1838 at 20 times what Chinese tea normally went for at auction. And according to historian Jayata Sharma, this meant the British consumer was ready to accept an quote-unquote empire tea. 
Erica Rappaport suggests, though, that while the Assam variety had a small interested market willing to pay for the privilege of buying British, it took 50 years for the Assam variety to displace the Chinese. People simply preferred Chinese tea. At 12, Andaram Dekiel Fukan traveled from his home in Assam to the big city of Calcutta in 1841. He attended school for three years before returning to Assam, where he was appointed by, appointed the first native magistrate. As historian Jada Sharma notes, his command of English and understanding of Western education made him a valuable asset for Assam's second colonial administrator and the driving force behind the Assamese tea cultivation, Colonel Francis Jenkins. Side note. Jenkins apparently fell in love with and married a Muslim Assamese girl named Manu Futaki. Well, that was her nickname. We won't get into those details now. They lived together in Assam until his death, and he never returned home to his home in England. So if this surprises you, we highly recommend Durba Ghosh's book, Sex and the Family in Colonial India, because we certainly are not going to get into the intricacies of that whole very complicated system. But she discusses in that book the role of marriage, sex, and the Indian woman Indian women in this period um, in their relationship mm. with this colonial state in throughout the 19th century, um, and the shift from legitimate legal relationships between British men like uh, Colonel Francis Jenkins and Indian or Assamese women uh, like Mani Futuki, and um, mm. from from legal right relationships to the sort of mistress standing with minimal legal mm-hmm. standing, um, which is a whole again whole episode on some. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I, I will have to check out that book. Uh, did you? Of course, you didn't. I don't know why I'm asking you this. There was um, there was a PBS series, um, or BBC series, probably more likely. Uh, maybe two years ago or a year ago. I don't know if they're making more episodes of it or not. It was. It's called Beecham House, and it was about a soldier who fought for the East India Company. Like that was his career um and he had had a an indian um i'm not sure mistress or wife i can't remember which one um but she had died and so a lot of it the the rest of the season was about sort of this clash between his white english family and his indian extended family um and sort of how he's they're trying to depict him as like cognizant of sort of the colonial thing that's going on while also depicting him as part of the colonial thing that's going on right it it was it was interesting i think there were flaws with it and it's probably why it didn't get picked up for a second season but it was interesting that could be lifted right out of derba gosha's book that's exactly what she talks about because in like the first half of the of the century in in the 18th century British men who had relationships with Indian women would like send their children from those relationships to the UK to get educated. And there's like, they could be um, potentially given legal status as heirs to their estates and all this stuff. And then we start to see more of that pushback both from Britain and then in the sort of disenfranchisement of both those children and the women in those relationships in the second half of the 19th century, particularly after Britain took formal control of India after 1857. Oh, uh, okay. Took it away yeah. from the EU, I think. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, 
Sharma writes that, quote, Andaram's family roots were in the Brahmaputra Valley's second tier elite, an upper caste service gentry that served the Aham state in a bureaucratic capacity. Like Anandaram, many members of this gentry managed to use administrative knowledge and a virtual monopoly over literacy to ease into British clerical service. In contrast, the top-ranking pre-modern elite, the Aham warrior aristocracy, lost ground in political and economic matters, end quote. Anandaram believed that the British presence in Assam could mean major economic and modernizing opportunities for his people. He was a poet and a defender of Assamese. His relationship with Jenkins seemed to be mutually beneficial and helped facilitate the restoration of Assamese as the national language of Assam. In his essay, Englandor Biwaran, uh, or Account of England, he wrote about his hope for the influence of England in Assam. Quote, O almighty Lord, enlighten them so that they can learn their misery and wretchedness. With your magical powers, civilize them. Make them capable so that they can recognize your power and come under your sway. Oh, dear Lord, hasten and bring in a new era when the jungles of Assam will turn into flower gardens, when riverboats will give way to steamships, when mud houses will turn into concrete homes, when thousands of schools be established in villages, when Zhang Sabas and hospitals will aid the poor, when violence will wither away and people will live in peace, love, and harmony forever. Indeed, the British administrators of Assam agreed with Anandaram's dream that Assam could be a garden, cultivated, curated, civilized. At the Great Exhibition in London in 1851, the Assam display of its tea plants won a medal. Visitors were invited to take in the flower gardens of Assam, the verdant, cultivated version of Assam that the British profited from. Anandaram died in 1859. According to some sources, he was only 29 at the time, though I'm not really sure how this makes sense, because it seems unlikely that Jenkins would have appointed a 15-year-old to be a magistrate of the British government. But if that's the case, we just don't have the correct birth year for him. So who knows? Though neither he nor his family were directly involved in the tea trade, like all Assamese people, Anandaram's short life was shaped by England's demand for tea. And ultimately, Anandaram's faith in the man who appointed him in the Assamese colonial government was misplaced. Jenkins used the Charter Act of 1833 to encourage European tea cultivators and planters displacing Assamese cultivators. It wasn't long before Jenkins started importing laborers to cultivate the tea as well. He and his contemporaries described the Assamese as brutish, uncivilized, and unsuited to cultivating the delicate Chinese tea plants. At the time of Anandaram's death, European planters only made up a small percentage of all Europeans in Assam. The potential of so many merchants, teachers, scientists, and others may have encouraged Anandaram's dreams for Assam. But as Sharma argues, quote, for most Assam locals, tea eventually became the god that failed. Despite a brief window when improving British partnership with a diversity of local individuals and groups seemed achievable, 
the late 19th century tea project of British India was consolidated as a predominantly white enterprise. Over a million indentured laborers reshaped Assam's social and physical landscapes, crafting its forests and fields into tidy tea gardens to support the British demand for imperial tea. Over the last decades of the 19th century, tea was solidified as a permanent cultural status, economic, and taste-making feature of Victorian British life. With the steady product coming out of Assam and a significant British investment in imperial tea production, entire industries developed around the growing, processing, distributing, marketing, and consuming of tea. Tea producers built major marketing firms to advertise the qualities of tea, still echoing the medical, social, and ritualistic sentiments taken from Chinese society two centuries previous. As tea production grew, so too did the centrality of marketing firms. Unlike other imperial products like corn, soy, sugar, oils, or cotton, tea had no applicable industrial repurposes, so when there was a surplus, it simply had to be sold. Tea growers had to get more customers to deal with a growing supply. Tea thus became firmly entrenched in British and British colonial culture. Tea shops abounded. Every lady's guide to proper housekeeping outlined appropriate tea services, and high tea was served in fancy hotels across the UK. Soldiers were granted their ration of tea on the fronts of the First and Second World Wars. Tea was served in every household at most meals, from Ireland to Barbados to Kenya to Australia and back to England. All of the imperial commodities shaped the British Empire, but none became quite so British, despite its decidedly Chinese origins, as tea. Today's goal was to cast a narrow light on the history of tea in the British Empire through these three specific individuals. From Queen Catherine, Mary Took, and Andaram Dekiel Fukan, we were able to contemplate how tea entered British cultural conversation, how tea factored into entrepreneurship and women's businesses in 18th century London, and how tea facilitated Britain's gutting of Assam economically, ecologically, and socially. There's so much more that we didn't talk about today. How tea was marketed by tea producers in the 19th and 20th centuries. The role of botanical gardens in tea science and cultivation. How tea was integrated into Victorian ideas about self-respectability and nationhood. How the British mm. government backed literal drug dealers in China through military intervention in the Opium Wars. How tea and tea drinking impacted dental health in Britain. How tea cultivation altered demographics in certain locales of the empire. How thirst for tea shaped the economy and agricultural production of India, Kenya, and various other regions occupied by the British. How tea was part of a vast material culture that empowered industrial and industrious revolutions. Or even how tea became, through the British Empire, the second most popular drink in the world after water. These are just some of the threads of this vast story that are woven together by historians like Erica Rappaport, Jane McCabe, Jayita Sharma, Markman Ellis, Richard Colton, Matthew Mogger, and Pia Chatterjee, among others. We encourage you to go ahead and learn about those on your own, or maybe send us money and we'll start our own tea podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll just have to do more episodes on tea someday in the future. No, no, yeah, this is, yeah, sure, sure, sure. This is such a massive topic that there's there's no way you could do justice to every aspect of the history of tea here. There's just there's just no way to do it all. One thing that you mentioned that I I am also 
just interested in learning more about is is marketing and how much marketing made tea this sort of vital part of British culture, yeah. right? Like you think of that as just being like, oh, well, the British have just always been very partial to tea or whatever. But the the intentionality behind that, the way that that was created and cultivated to create a market for tea yeah. is is really interesting. Yeah, Rappaport book, Rappaport's book talks about this a lot. And it's really interesting because at that point where they were trying to make this Assamese tea be the imperial tea, right? Like that took right. a lot of work in marketing to convince yeah. people that they didn't want the Chinese tea that they'd grown accustomed to anymore. And that right. to drink Chinese tea was like foreign and bad and feminine right. and all these other things, right? Because it's casting, it's this anti-foreignness sentiment, it's mm -hmm. nationalistic, it's imperialistic. And so that kind of messaging was deployed explicitly to get people to drink quote unquote imperial tea right like the tea mm -hmm. of the british empire nope okay well thanks for listening to this very surface scratching episode on tea history in the british empire uh make sure that you're following us on facebook twitter and the old instagram at dig underscore history which is also now our youtube handle dig underscore history so if you really get tired of the convenience of listening to this episode in the palm of your hand through your podcast app, you could always, for some reason, join the thousands of people who listen to this episode on YouTube. A lot of people listen to a lot of stuff on YouTube. It's very interesting. Uh, it seems like more we're work. elder millennials. Even. Yeah, that's true. We're too old. Um, <laughs> and you can visit our website, digpodcast.org. If you're an educator, we have all kinds of great uh, lesson plans and ways to use our episodes in the classroom all free mm -hmm. because this is an open educational resource that we create. Um, I mean, for a general listenership, you know, all of our listeners are welcome, but if you're a teacher and you want to use these episodes in your classroom, we're thinking of you as well. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And you can visit our swag store at, uh, you know, through the website, digpodcast.org. If you feel like getting some radical scholarship swag all up on you, uh, we've got, yeah, we'll man. have some stickers that are dig. And then our friends over at nursing Cleo have a, a series of those stickers as well. Um, and t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. So, um, support the radical public scholarship, righteous fight on blah, blah, blah. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast was produced by the historians of dig Elizabeth Garner, Masaryk, Sarah Hanley cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. That threatened the pop, but the production levels, the production levels created a surplus that threatened the prop. Oh my God. The production levels created a surplus that threatened the profitability. I cannot say the word profitability. You just did. Catherine of, Bra of Bran. Catherine of Brazang. Brazanga. Catherine of Branzanga was born in Portugal in 1638 to Luisa de Guzman and John, 8th Duke of Braganza. <laughs> Catherine of Braganza was to that bold nation, which the way did show to the face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, doesn't everything? Well, the, yeah, I'm no. like.
unsweetened iced tea, but hot tea. Gotta put something in there. Why? How is that different? I don't know. It's more refreshing when it's cold and unsweetened. Hmm. Interesting. Don't include any of this in this episode. <laughs> it's going into the outtakes. <laughs> so that the state could sell. Okay, I'm sorry. I said that whole thing wrong. Clicking stuff. <laughs> Righteous fight on, blah, blah, blah. 